Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It was more than a pleasure to be in conversation today with Kevin Frank. Kevin is a certified advanced rolfer, Rolf Movement Practitioner, and Rolf Movement Instructor for the Rolf Institute. He's worked with the Hubert Godard-derived tonic function model since 1991 and has written on this topic from 1995 to the present day. Kevin advocates for an information system view of structural integration to help bring the SI field into congruence with modern understanding of motor control and perceptive coordinative processes. Kevin became a rolfer in 1987, drawn to the work, having spent two decades in Zen practice and inquiry, and then looking for a profession built around fostering awareness to the present moment. Kevin is also the co-author, with Karen McCoes, of How Life Moves, Explorations in Meaning and Body Awareness. I read this book last year and found it very informative and helpful for my work. I've included a link for you to purchase this amazing book in the show description. In today's conversation, we spoke about Rolf movement, the dichotomy of pure structural versus movement rolfing, tonic function theory, the movement brain, interdisciplinary holistic health, and really a ton more. Kevin is a thoughtful, intelligent, charismatic human being, and he offers quite a lot to chew on here. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. Howdy. Hi, Andrew. Nice to see you. There you are. Wow. I'm just really excited to learn from you. I've, of course, have known about you forever and um, have always wanted to take one of your trainings and just it just hasn't lined up in my schedule. We could start start by what, what brought you to the work and then how, how you see the work and what Rolf movement is, is for you. Okay. So in addition to the articles on our resources and movement website is my, is a very short description of what Rolf movement is. Um, and, but let's start with the origin story a little bit. So, and this will be brief, even though it starts with being born. So I was born and, um, my little embryonic body and my little neonatal body noticed that it's a very fraught thing to suddenly be in a body on a planet, very fraught. And uh, it's taken me the rest of my life to kind of sort that out a little bit. And Rolfing has been helpful in figuring out what it means to be in a body, what the potentialities are, the potentialities that uh, make it at least sometimes an interesting proposition to be in a body on a planet. So um, when I was 16, I encountered a student of Houston Smith who was teaching a Saturday class for high school students. And 
he was a member of the Rochester Zen Center because Houston Smith wrote the introduction to the three pillars of Zen, which is anyway, blah, blah, blah. So when I was 16, I was really ripe for that message, which is um, I knew about from my experience of being in my being that there was something really disconnected in my experience. Even though I had a wonderful, very wonderful set of parents and extended family, a whole bunch of social scientists and so on. But I was really disconnected. And um, the, Zen, the Zen message, and I started reading about it, started practicing within a year or two, um, felt to me like, okay, this is the first thing that makes sense in my life that I've ever come across. This actually makes sense. It makes more sense than all the um, social scientists in my family and my extended collegial family. This actually makes sense. And um, so that became a background to everything in my life. And incidentally, around 1985, six, three members of the Rochester Zen Center all decided to become rolfers without consulting with each other. Um, one of them was Bob Shry, he's source point guy in New Mexico. And the other is John Botsford, who's in Rochester, New York. And um, so I think there's actually, and of course, then there's Jeff Maitland and, you know, countless other people who've sort of found an interweaving between the, the Zen or something Zen-like, some meditation practice, certainly. Um, and so there I was in the... Um, 80s, helping to build a retreat center, a huge 12,000 square foot retreat center with all volunteer labor while we were doing fundraise, while I was living in a tent on a hillside. Um, and it was a huge responsibility because I was kind of like, you know, really the assistant to the founder of the place. Um, and I had kind of talked up the idea we could build this. <laughs> so, so it was, it was, it was a very suspenseful time and yet a very creative time. At the end of that project, I really was, um, you know, I'd had to chainsaw accident during the project. You know, I'd had to like limp around on crutches, you know, a building site. And anyway, when all that was done, I took some time off and I learned about Rolfing by meeting a Rolfer in California and also knowing there's someone in Rochester. And it seemed like something that really might help my body. Um, and uh, so I got I got sessions from a Rolfer in New Hampshire. I was back here for a little while. And in the first session, I went, oh, this is a way to apply the meditative, uh, the co-experience of the present moment but you have a label that would actually have people come and see you and, and be with you. So that was the primary thing that really drew me to it. It helped my body discomfort better than all the, you know, I had done lots of yoga, lots of exercise, trying to make my body hold up to construction tasks. 
so that was very helpful. But the thing that really profoundly touched me in the very first session is, oh, this is a way to actually cultivate awareness through the sense of being in a body. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Was your first session the classic first hour of the Tin Series or? Yeah, Tisha Agri was my rolfer. She was trained in 78 with Bill Smythe. And um, uh, she um, she's very lovely woman out in California now who who got this. So her presence was very palpable. And when she worked with me, it was clear to me from my background that she was reading my experience, which I feel is so fundamental to being a good practitioner. And I watched Jeff Maitland um, many years ago. He did a workshop, he and Jan, and um, I watched what he was doing while he was seeing. And I realized, oh, he's reading the perceptual experience of the client. What a good thing to do. You know, how helpful that everything he does is in response to not, you know, the outer shell of the person, but being in harmony, being in useful improvisation with the person's experience of body and mind and context. So um, that struck me in the first session and I was hooked. It was a good thing. And the teachers who have really been beneficial for me, which is all of them, um, but the ones that, that particularly caught my attention were as Ray McCall uh, expressed it, you know, or maybe Jim expressed it about Ray, you know, reading the, the, reading the field. And I don't mean the aura. I mean, reading the, the way that the person has ingredients, potentiality, and where is the system hungry for new information, which makes me want to take a little sidebar, if that's okay, and say, to me, Rolf Movement is emphasizing what I call an information model of structural integration, rather than a body as stuff, a body that is trying to organize. And what it needs is the right information at the right time to allow it to reboot the way it is configuring movement. Posture is movement. Doing stuff is movement. And all of that is governed by the way in which we have these motor patterns. And those depend, if you're gonna reboot them, on information the body's interested in. And what is the body really interested in? What allows us to find plasticity? information that pertains to the deepest security of the body. And the deepest security of the body is very related to the infrastructure in the body that is sensitive to gravity. And that means that we have a potential model to embrace all the different ways we do structural integration. 
That's a little plug. <laughs> and I like that because I do believe that we all do have a passion, as you were saying, Nikki. We all have, we've all been inspired. We wouldn't do this stuff if we weren't inspired. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the way to make a lot of money. <laughs> For sure. That is the truth. For sure. Um, well, I love how you articulated that because it was so much more than the, what my little blank statement is just to kind of calm down the anxious student of what Rolf Moomin is. And I was like, you know, basically you're, it's creating structural changes through movement and empowering, giving tools to empower your client to be able to do these on their own, to integrate the work when they're not in the office with you and just kind of removing the the mystery of what it is because they haven't quite gotten the download yet or they're still not sure if that's a, a extra schooling path that they're going to take but they still have to meet these requirements and that has I've noticed you know kind of seeing how their nervous system relaxes after their you know what their expectations are as as a student to be able to do these Roth movement sessions is knowing that it's just offering information, but I like how you're presenting is, is a reboot because it's often what we need. It's movements that we've forgotten or and that are so easy to do to foster structural changes that we're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're helping to ground this conversation for potential students, Nikki. That's seems like a really good thing. And, and you know, students are often put in the position when they're they're being taught a 13 series of suddenly having to do these sessions. And it's, I think it's hard to give them preparation in a basic series, you know, the phases, the basic phases. It's really hard because there's no time for it. You know, there's some time for it, but, but I do think in phase one, that's an important opportunity to lay a foundation for um, what's the relationship between. So we have some ideas about that, but further, I think in order to, to make that leap from doing the fascial work to, in, to beginning to evoke uh, participation of the client in their reboot in order to evoke for some people it's not a natural jump from from working with the fascia okay and I think that's because we have to really get curious you know curious well what is the experience of the client and sometimes the skill of evoking the client to even start to know they have an experience, a experience that has a sensory component to it is a big challenge. And that's, that's something that I was actually sort of listening to and thinking a bit about is when working with people, sometimes it's, it's not just about rebooting. It's, I think even before you reboot, it's like, Hey, have you noticed this? And, and so yes, for me, I do a lot of walking with my clients so that I can yeah. see them, but also so that they can experience how they're moving through life. And, um, 
And it's a, sometimes just that sense of like, oh, I didn't even realize X. And mm-hmm. even, and maybe mm-hmm. the reboot happens, but I, later, but it's even like just that, that download right there. That is reboot. Yeah. And okay. At the moment when someone says, ah, I didn't notice this before. That's already the reboot. That's a piece of it. That's a piece I would of it. Say. Okay. Yeah. So great. I love it. Yeah. So my background in, 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 in technology is like, is that the reboot? I guess that'd be the reboot, but you still have to do the reload or, or the new load. But well, well, fortunately, we're not machines, but I, I, I know that I use these analogies, perhaps imprecisely, but I do think there's micro reboots and then there's reboots that r- rise to the threshold of like, you know, wow. I feel my spine having torsion as I move, you know? I mean, so there's a whole bunch of different things. And I think unlike machines, we we really have to rebuild strength in those new neural connections. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, um, it's like we have to reboot a whole lot over and over again. (laughs) But at any rate, it starts, I think, precisely what you're saying, Andrew, which is it starts with, is the client comfortable enough as they walk back and forth with their practitioner that they even reveal their authentic, quote unquote, authentic, what, you know, what, how they really move so that the practitioner can actually start to resonate with how they're moving and gain information. Aha, when I walk with this person, I don't feel a lot of movement in my sacrum. When I walk with this person, oh, my head doesn't feel like it's actually with the space. You know, so I think the skill that you both have that we're trying to foster with students is it's a fuzzy logic to get there. You know, it's, it is these happy accidents in class where, 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 or not in class, where, where a student starts to go, oh, um, I'm aware of my, what's, what's changing inside me. Now I have some clue as to one way a client might be discovering ease, discovering a reduction in effort and movement that gets birthed out of a uh, a fresh noticing, as opposed to trying to imitate a pattern or trying to, you know, yeah. do it the right way. Yeah. And, and, simi- and similarly, sometimes seeing the practitioner move in their mimicry of the client can be helpful to say oh i can yes I, I can i can see that and now i can feel that as i as i see it in you pardon me while i say brilliant andrew but but it really that's that i love what you just said because I'll take it. okay because yes how do we get to the point where we can really embody the patterns we see in our students or our clients, and the reliably be able to go back and forth between demonstrating strain pattern versions of common motor patterns versus ones that have elongation, that have 
you know, um, a diminished sense of effort and an increased efficacy. And I'd say, I'm going to make another sidebar if I may. So we're teaching these intensive modules and the intensive modules really, the curriculum is not new for some of us, but it's, we're being, we're expanding something, which is to teach the 10 series as perceptive and coordinative skills. And one way to do that, which Karen and I, my partner, Karen and I, life partner, teaching partner, um, have come to express the curriculum is in the form of saying, what if every session, whether you're doing fascial mobilization or not, begins with a particular movement? And we have these, we have the knee bend, we have the you know walk, we have the arm raises, all this stuff. But what if it's it's a little bit more in the direction of um, kind of a coordinative challenge? And we do that at the beginning of each session, and we say to the client, this is the point of this session. When I go from this version of coordination to this version, and I show them in my body, this is what this session's all about. We're gonna do it at the beginning of the session. We're gonna do it at the end of the session. In the middle of the session, we're gonna do it on the table, on a bench, standing, whatever. But it's all the light motif of the session is revolving around at least one, if not several coordinative challenges, whether we're doing fascial mobilization or not. And by the way, for your listeners, I have to say this over and over again, because when I write, people get the impression, oh, Kevin doesn't believe in fascial mobilization, which is not true. I'm a believer, a card-carrying member of the structural integration community, and I do fascial mobilization all the time. However, the way I talk about it is not necessarily what I think it's always talked about, but Anyway, when you do this coordinated thing before and after through every session, one of the things I think it does both for students in classes and for the clients is ground. What's the point of this stuff? I just went from mimicking where my, again, I'm going to go back to, I just wrote an article that came out in March called, Karen and I wrote this together, called A Head That Belongs to the Space. And the proposal is we want to start working on that in the first session. And we can do that if we start to posit that that's a perceptual coordination that we can begin in the first session. So as we make this, we're helping the client and the student ground what the point of the series is in ways where whether they're kinesthetic learners, visual learners, auditory learners, you can hit all those learning styles because I say it, I show it, and I show it on the model. And um, then I have them feel it, feel the coordinated thing. And then I stand in a mirror and I get in front of them and I do it. And then they see themselves in the mirror at the same, in this, you know, one second later. So the point is to educate 
and I'll, I'll wrap this little sidebar up, but um, the, the point for me has a lot to do with how do people really get, begin to grasp the goal of the work for them? And I think that's very important. If we're going to have a broader audience in the world. I think that's great. I think because what I have seen just again, being a student and being a, a teacher in this work, it is tricky. And I know I struggled with that definitely in my early years. I mean, Rolfing's essentially been my only career and I was 22. So having that language of trying to evoke an experience when I'm still like kind of fresh into recognizing my own experiences, it was tricky. It was definitely like, I definitely found myself in some awkward moments being like, wait, this isn't the way I speak. <laughs> so it took me a while to find my own way. But I found, I think that that's really great that the um, the Rolf movement has in some way became a little bit more structured because I, although it's a nice kind of departure when you're in such a heavy download of the, the 10 series and this is the territory and this is what you'll do. And it's, it's great to have that, but then to go from like, here's a well-organized way of approaching the body and you're going to most likely get some kind of re rewarding response. And then now do this Rolf movement and you're kind of left on your own to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of people get confused while they are turned on to the idea of Rolf movement. Haven't really been able to ingest the, the, the Kool-Aid because they're still kind of swimming around in it. So I think that's great. So with that being said, so, so here's a, a kind of maybe a, a, a new approach, but how does that fall into with the, um, oh my God, it just spaced. The intensive the modules? Mo no, the model. No, I, the, um, I think she's going to say the, the tonic function. The, totally tonic function. The tonic function model. Yeah. And then actually before I'd like to ask you a question about that and, and see if, if I have it correct for my own ego. No, no. For my own uh, knowledge, which is, like <laughs> which is exactly what I was going to ask you. So I think Nikki and I are finally in training after like 40 episodes, which is my under sort of understanding right now is that as Nikki was just saying, like giving more words to Rolf movement is that more or less the tonic function model is the model of Rolf movement, if I'm saying it right. And, the, and the, the way that I sort of got that was I just took one of the the Rolf movement intensives and I was sort of trying to figure out, you know, you have these older Rolf movement people from the 60s, 70s, and you have maybe a newer breed who are following Hubert's work. And I was saying, well, what's the difference? And what the answer I kind of got back was that the people before were doing tonic function, which Kevin will describe shortly, but they just didn't have that terminology and that that the tonic function is a way of sort of describing what we're doing as Rolf movement. Is that right? I like that you came away from one of our intensive modules with that impression, Andrew. I, that's encouraging. We're This is the first time we've done this uh, program and uh, um, that sounds good. Uh, yeah, I think... I think I'm going to be careful about characterizing a contrast, but I will say that when those of us who started studying with Godard 1990, 1991, um, 
from my experience was, oh, this makes sense. This makes sense out of our work. Now, just to say, Godard, you know, graduated from college with a, I think a degree in, in chemistry and, you know, he did a lot of different things. Um, his, when he started to teach Ralphers, we were getting a synthesis of many, many things. And I'm not going to go into the, all the things. Um, tonic function comes from a particular physiotherapist in France, Raymond Soyer. And um, all this stuff is in French. There are a couple of Ralph Movement teachers who have uh, instructors who have libraries of his work. But the, the lovely thing about the tonic function model as Hubert created it, and as it's getting further articulated by those of us who write about it and teach about it, is that it does create, I feel, an understandable and grounded explanation for why Dr. Rolf made such a big deal about gravity. You know, you say to people, fashion, they go, oh yeah, I know about fashion. You say gravity and they go, you know, so, and if you ask Rolfing instructors about it, you know, it's historically been a little vague. So the tonic function model says the same infrastructure that keeps us from falling down is the same stuff that we need to be able to provide information to in order to have better movement habit. And posture is movement. So basically, when you change posture, whether you're working in the fascial mobilization part of your life or you're saying, Let's change your pre-movement, which is a big part of the tonic function model. Let's change how you prepare to move, take time to slow it down, create different information. Have you noticed that information? Learn to repeat having that information. Change the pre-movement. Whatever you're doing, fascial mobilization or changing pre-movement or other things, using your imagination, all of it is trying to catch the interest of what I've called the movement brain. And why do we use the term movement brain when we teach? Because we don't want people to associate with specific anatomical parts. We wanna say this is a very distributed brain. Some of it is in the mechanoreceptors and the other receptors throughout the body. Some of it's in the fascia around the organs, some of it's in the brain, the cerebellum, you know, all kinds of brainstem, all kinds of places. So the movement brain is everything that belongs to the non-conscious or the sensory motor brain. And the tonic function model is basically saying, and here comes the bullet point, we want to have a better conversation. Don't tap the table, you're gonna tell me. We want to have a better conversation between the sensory motor brain and the cognitive brain, because that's where the disconnect is. Whether we're doing fascial mobilization or whether we're working with perception, the disconnect is between those two brains. And guess one, guess which one is the boss? 
That's a that's a quiz for the two of you. The sensory motor brain or the cognitive brain? Which one really runs the show? It's a tricky question. I mean, I, cognitive is I would want to say, but you're getting information. Sense- you mean you're getting information from sensory motor too? But I, I mean, I'm from New England and Jewish, so I have to go with cognitive because that's what we do for everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, um, you know, it's a trick question, of course as all these questions are that are designed to like sort of upset, you know, what people's beliefs might be a little bit in a friendly. Well, I love your definition of the, the movement brain because it allows for so many potentials of why I do what I do. And it could be from this or that, or who cares? It's from, the whole story. And yeah. Yeah. So what I'm going to say is if you, the boss, when it comes to plasticity of motor patterns, it's a sensory motor brain. There's a wonderful article, which I don't put on our website because I don't have copy prediction, but I, I, I send it to anyone who wants it. It's by a lovely French neuro scientist who's passed away in 07. Jacques Payard, and he does a beautiful schematic in which he shows the two brains schematically. So in information technology, you show the the, uh, themes of what you want to produce in the software before you actually write code. So this is a beautiful thematic architecture. And he did this for 30 years. And in that you see the brain that's about where and the brain that's about what? And the where brain, quote unquote, the one that's all about spatial relationships, location, that's the boss when it comes to motor activity. That's why it's called the sensory motor brain. So Payard, it's a wonderful thing. It's a chapter in the book on body image and body schema, but it's, it's available as a PDF. Anyway, Payard created this model in a way that touched my heart. He take, and he says this in, this in this beautiful article. He says, I wanted to be able to have people in the social sciences, such as psychologists, be able to have a meaningful conversation with the neuroscientists. Because if you know how the different specialties go, they can't talk to each other because they don't have that interdisciplinary tendency. The ones who get really far in a specialty didn't necessarily bring along. Now, Payard brought this along and he created a model which would work for psychology or it could work for neuroscience, people in biology. And I think that's what we need in the structural integration world is a way to language our work that makes room for the people working for with inherent motion, for the people working with, you know, high amplitude vectorized touch, you know, for people working with much more subtle touch that isn't necessary biodynamic cranial, but, you know, is they get results. And then for those people, and this has happened to me, and I'm not saying I'm really good at it, 
where you're just in the room with someone and stuff starts to happen to the experience and the person and you don't do anything, but a lot of stuff happens. Whatever the style and the passion of a person's work, it would be nice if we had a way to talk about it that doesn't make somebody wrong because we've done that. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen? That is so (laughs) true. So true for our work. Um, I mean, wow, you really anchored that. And I I think that's awesome because this, the work has potential for, of course, working with a type of pressure that's safe and you're always still listening to the body, but there, I I know this has kind of been a discussion with the, the Institute of trying to find Rolfing and is Rolfing defined by touch and if so, then what it is, what is it? Is it this heavy handed, you know, produce pain that we're historically still with? I mean, this is a quick question we presented with Jan Sultan because it's still mind boggling for me being in Boulder where there's so many rolfers here and um, still meeting people and being like, oh, I'm really interested in getting rolfing, but I don't, I don't want to be in pain or, oh, I'm not in the mood to like open up my life story and start crying. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's a whole lot else to this. And um, so it's just, it's still, and I mean, in my first practice in Aspen, fresh out of the Institute, I put in a newspaper article in that said, Rolfing doesn't have to be painful. And yeah, I got so many calls. That little mm. newspaper article, I got so many people calling me and be like, wait, what do you mean? I've wanted to get this, but I, I've just, I don't want, I don't want that type of touch. I don't want to be in pain. And um, I mean, that alone. Yeah. And Kevin, I mean, when I'm hearing this, I, I won't say names, but I worked at a, a very high end uh, top uh, spa retreat wellness detox place. And they had a, they had, I mean, they had a great setup. They had a neuroscientist, they had osteopaths, they had uh, physios, a great massage therapist. They had this great thing but they weren't able to talk to each other uh about their clients and they they, people would go there and see all these they would see each of them but yet there was no there was no um i was thinking of a hub and spoke there was nothing in there and i was going in between these these people because i was there as a visiting person and have aspects of of all of those i'm not necessarily like and i've studied basic osteopathy i've studied basic neuroscience i've studied lots of manual manipulation and so i was kind of going in and doing this hub and spoke model between them because it just made sense to me and was trying to get them to implement this but there there wasn't i mean the osteopath there was amazing uh but he had zero understanding of really the neuroscience at all nor should he that's not what he studied but I'm sort of looking at if we're if we're implementing a, a holistic model, right? And everyone loves the word holistic now. It's such a buzzword. But if we're implementing a holistic model, uh, you know, what, what makes that whole? And how do you do that if you're not actually integrating? Uh, and this is actually one of the things I realized during uh, during my, the recent Rolf movement training is when someone said we were talking about, you know, what does this word mean or what does it mean to you? And then I realized that. Uh, inter, in, integration and holistic actually have the same 
root. You know, they both mean um, essentially whole, you know, um, or, 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 mm-hmm. or, or beingness. So um, sort of a tangent, but what you're saying resonates to me so much on that, that level of, of how, well, how do we do this that we can, we can all communicate and talk so that our, our work and other people's work can, can grow and be better. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered your tonic function question, you know, we could go into it a lot, but you know, what, what, yeah. I, I think, I mean, the thing is, I think you answered it really well at the same point. It's, it's a topic that you've written numerous articles about yeah. and, and you'll write more about and there's trainings on and we only have so much time in the day. And I guess sort of just to clarify what I was saying before about people viewing it before, it wasn't that they were necessarily doing tonic function. It's that what they were trying to, to do or what they were doing is represented within within that. But I yeah. 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 So so I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that all the Ralph movement instructors were deeply capable of evoking changes in the way people were experiencing their body and the way that they posture movement and so on and so forth. And if you're gonna do that, there's only one path and that's to speak to the movement brain. There are many ways to speak to the movement brain. One of my articles has a list of, you know, about 20, 20 kind of really off the top of my head uh, factors that help you talk to the movement brain. Um, and so nothing new, whether we go back 5,000 years to China or, you know, whatever the Greeks, the people, or, you know, people in indigenous societies that are pre-technological, you're going to find some individuals who have a knack for being sensory empaths, kinesthetic empaths. And guess what? They're around somebody and they feel what they're doing in their body. And they come over and they put their hands on someone and their hands are saying, you don't gotta work so hard here. Feel this, let yourself notice what can change as you just become aware of the traffic jam that's going on. Feel that. And they don't even have to say those words because their hands are evoking that experience so reliably, whether it's the local shaman, you know, sort of like a 3000 years ago, Jan Sultan, you know, <laughs> there, who, whomever, whoever it is, was doing what we now call tonic function because tonic function is all about where are the portals of opportunity in a living organism to get better information, to replace the crappy information that is the result of injury, uh, uh, doing things in a hurry, doing things with someone standing over you and criticizing you, you know, fill in the blank. All the ways in which we corrupt the code to go back to the technology thing, how do we get corrupted code in the, in the movement brain? We practice it. 
lived, lived experience. <laughs> it lived experience often in factors in, in circumstances that are not optimum for supporting our learning experience, right? One-time learning trial, boom. Now I'm going to have trolley tracks that go in the, you know, lead in the direction of, you know, arthrosis of my hip or whatever. And so I think the tonic function model is just a way of explaining why do some things work better than others? And tonic function explains why fascial mobilization works. So it's a, you know, it's a great model for that. I'm not sure that's been broadly realized, but um, I keep writing, I keep talking, you know, it's, it's <laughs> something I invite people to notice when they're interested. I don't waste my time with those people who go, yeah, 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 you know, because like, that's that's not interesting to try to talk people into. Yeah. I love skeptical people because skeptical people, there's an there's an opportunity there. And that's why we get along so well, Kevin. <laughs> no, but I, re I mean, there was something we said earlier that uh, I was going to hit upon, but I'll, I'll tie it in back here, which was that, you know, there's still that that sense of. And some people maybe, uh, and I, I, I don't feel this with you, uh, with either of you, but there's a sense of like, it has to be structure, it has to be movement, and it, it still keeps us separated. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It, it can be both. Uh, it can be, you know, separate at certain times, but both. And as when I, I, I was fortunate that I had other movement and, and embodied experiences before I came to Rolfing. So for Rolf movement, I was able to bring that in, even though I had no idea what I was doing uh, during my training. But having just gone through the the first part of the the intensive, uh, really has hit home that it how it how it can really be both. And when I was thinking when Nikki was sort of giving it, helping out the prospective students, and I'm thinking, well, I'm just gonna do the opposite. I'm gonna deground you, which is to think the you know when you get trained in that 13 series of having the three in between what well, really movement could be a, a singular movement class and so a non-fascial one can actually be dispersed anywhere in between so if if we were see, if i was seeing a client uh and let's say i was for some reason doing a, a traditional 13 which for those listening who don't know it would be three movement specific classes in between the 10 structural classes at certain points. And if correct me if I'm wrong, it's before one, before four, and before eight. Different instructors choose different, different intervals. Yeah. But if I was doing it with someone and I saw for some reason in between, you know, session six and seven, something wasn't moving as I was hoping it would, I could just bring a movement class in, uh, into that and not follow that traditional recipe which I know we want students to learn traditional recipes because it helps you then get off. But really, you can you can mix it however you want. Uh, well, I think once you learn how to mix it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I I mix everything all the time. <laughs> so when you heard my paradigm for doing sessions, let me back up for a moment. So you've used the term structure. So do you know how Ida Rolf defined structure on page 31 of her book? Uh, I can go grab the book. No, no, no. <laughs> this is just to see if you've already, you've already got my line. Um, 
So on page, I was I was writing and I said, you know, let's see what, let's see what, as Jan Sultan, let's see what grandma said. And, and on page 31, she says, and this is in italics, structure is behavior. Now, I have deep suspicions where, where she got that frame of mind, because I happen to have a father who is colleagues with the person who uh, dreamed up something called general systems theory, uh, Ludwig van Bernalanffy. But Godard brought in the idea that there's four kinds of structure, physical structure, psychological structure, coordinative structure, perceptual structure. And then Rebecca Carley suggested expressive structure, which I can embrace. So in other words, when we talk about structural integration and we talk about structural work versus, you know, uh, functional work, um, it's not a helpful dichotomy. And, and this is baked into many curriculums, curricula. And what I'd like to suggest is that in phase one, we actually help students understand that the things that are controlling, the things in the movement brain that are controlling a motor pattern, which means how we move, how we stand, posture, all the rest of it, it's not necessarily physical. This is why I suggest the information model. We may touch physically, but the information that the body needs to innovate, to, to liberate its way of moving could be a whole lot of different things. And so again, that's to start to sort of soften the dichotomy um, because often structure, structure is defined as, well, you know, where the bones and fascia are. But why are the bones and fascia there? <laughs> so anyway, just to say, really questioning the, the inquiry into what is structure would help us a lot in going forward um, because I think sometimes structural integration schools are in danger of putting themselves out of business unless they modernize the language and modernize the paradigm. That's an editorial statement. That's just my own. So then how would you, I agree with what you're saying 100%. I think if just for sake of simplicity of like, we're moving into this part of the curriculum, yeah, the 10 series to the Rolf movement. Uh, okay. I, what would I you call, define them yeah, as? Yeah. So first of all, when I'm with colleagues, I say, okay, the basic Rolfing curriculum, the advanced Rolfing curriculum the Rolf movement curriculum, I would say, if I mean fascial mobilization, I say fascial mobilization, or I say the manual therapy aspects of the work versus the perceptive, coordinative, psychobiological dimensions of the work. I think we're always doing well. When I teach a movement class, I don't teach fascial mobilization because I wanna have people experience this is what's possible in the absence of it. And then I say, by the way, you can do all these things when you're doing fascial mobilization, but try it without, 
just to see what it does. And then I say fascial mobilization. You know, you can add fascial mobilization in at any time. I say, here, watch me do this move. I'm helping the body differentiate apodicular from axial. I'm having the person do it themselves with the use of their foot and my body braced against their scapula. They're going to feel the sense of, wow, I can feel my fish body, my my axial body differentiate from my appendicular body. That's a very important perception, but I'm having them do it kinesthetically, visually, auditorily. And then I say, guess what you could do here? You could do fascial mobilization while you're doing this move. So you can see how I do it. I I just make it clear. I'm grounding it. I'm using words that have a more specific meaning. Because when you say structural, I think it's one of those words that doesn't help us really look at what do we mean when we say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've worked on this with the movement faculty for, you know, a long time. And it's, there are a lot of languages that people use that, you know, it's pretty habitual. And I, I try not to get all, you know, um, worried about it. But since you asked the question, it gives me an opportunity to say that. I appreciate it. Yeah, I agree with Nikki and appreciate it. And also that um, I think I'll speak for myself um, and maybe Nikki feels the same is that I think we're a little slower to respond a bit because there's just such good information you're giving. And we're also just sort of downloading. And in some ways, this is maybe more educational for us than some of the other talks we had. So we're just, I think, a little slower to respond because it's, it is such rich information, but it's not information to just be taken, but is to be processed and to be digested and to be heard. Sure. No, I appreciate it because it's been a while for me because I feel like I had such a wonderful, um, integrated and enriching basic training by, you know, it wasn't a separate and, um, and I've done a ton of work of being a student and doing teacher trainings with a ton of different other movement modalities, all, all because, it, it, I would like with Pilates or gyrotonic, um, yoga, all these things, but rolfing was there for me first. So naturally I'm going as a student and then later as a teacher kept on being like, Oh, wow, this, this, this thing would be really great to help support somebody in this, mm-hmm. where they were in their rolfing series. And so what I'm really enjoying hearing from you is for me, it's like a refresher and, 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 getting um, more present of the Rolf movement conversation that is, and coming from the source, this is, I think, too, what I'm really enjoying about this conversation is actually to speak with you because so much is, you know, what I hear from faculty meetings or whatnot is kind of trickle down secondhand information. Yeah. So I, um, I feel hopeful because there's times where I wonder what's going to happen with the Rolf movement. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long, it's a long-term question. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things I'm hearing from you, Nikki, I want to echo how I'm sort of hearing it. And this might be a question or it might be a comment. So we'll see how Kevin responds to that. But one of the things I've really enjoyed about Rolf movement, 
movement recently, which I didn't enjoy at first, is that while there is a definition, it's also a very large. So you could be doing Pilates movements with your client, um, but more or less through a Rolf movement frame or yoga or a continuum or Feldenkrais, but not necessarily vice versa. And, and that's something I hated at first because I was like, but what is it? I need to have this like concrete definition. Uh, but as I've gone through it, the it's like, oh, but it can be all that. Like I can, you can take almost anything in to the, to the pot to help your clients stew be even better. Yeah. It's good to separate out technique from what is the fundamental lens or viewpoint or um, certainly Rolf movement has a lot of things that are derivative of Ida Rolf, but also all the people contributed you know, Dorothy Nolte, Judith Aston, Heather and Gail and Janie and Annie and Jane Harrington and, and um, you know, all these people, Vivian Jay, all these people. Um, and, you know, we've, we've imported stuff from Feldenkrais. We've imported stuff from Alexander. We've imported stuff from from all kinds of different places, what makes it Rolf movement isn't so much the technique. And I try to cite, I say to people, okay, we're changing the fixed point. As far as I know, Moshe Feldenkrais came up with that idea. You know, but once you say, well, why are we doing it? And what is our purpose in doing it? I think that's where it's helpful to define Rolf movement in terms of what things seem to be signature or iconic about Rolf movement. And I think we've talked about some of those in this conversation today, things like the tonic function model, the idea of changing the preparation to move, but then, you know, the principles that were espoused by Jeff Maitland, you know, support principle, palantonicity principle, continuity principle, adaptability, you know, um, closure, you know, all these principles actually have meaning when we start to see how they help inform choices about how we work with people, you know, what we prioritize. Doing a 10 series, that that's very Ida Rolf, right? You know, or a 12 or a 13 series, whatever derivative. Um, there are things that are peculiar to our way of delivering um, a process that's about helping people find more of their potentialities opening up in their body. And, and um, you know, you could say, well, what's not about movement? You know, I mean, perception is a motor pattern. There's a nice little bullet point for you. And it's, it's very clear. And I'm not going to ground it in this conversation, but it's very groundable. Perception is a motor pattern just like all our gross movement is a motor pattern. Well, kind of everything is a motor pattern. We're saying that we want to teach people, not fix them, we wanna teach people to be empowered to whatever degree they're ready in making lasting shifts, discoveries and lasting shifts that they can deepen in their motor patterns. 
That's their posture. That's washing the dishes. That's making love. That's using a chainsaw. <laughs> nice contrast there. As you know, I was going to say, hopefully not all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, whatever we do, you know, resting is a motor pattern. How many people are able to rest? Say, okay, how do you rest right now? How do you find rest in this moment? How do you deepen that restful awareness? That's a motor pattern. Yeah. Well, I feel like I think the one issue with it is there's there's a there's so many places to go with it, but also at the same point, like I mentioned before, the processing and digesting, and especially as when you were mentioning the principles from Maitland and closure kind of came off at the end there. <laughs> part of me feels like, well, that's a good place to to close for today. I feel like it's a pretty there's just so much information, and it also may be good for people to listen a few times. But for people wanting to find more, you know, you mentioned your your website, and I'll put it in the uh, in the notes. But can you share it again with that or anything yeah. else? Yeah, it's simply resourcesinmovement.com, and all the articles that we've written, plus other articles that we think are significant are in the article archive. And there's also videos of some of the movement, uh, some of the um, self-care things that we introduce in sessions on um, their videos uh, on the website as well. Yeah, and uh, I'll put a link for your book. I think it's on Amazon or people can be like me and email you directly and then drive up to your place and pick it up. Not for much longer though. <laughs> Not for much longer. Well, I, I just want to thank you for your time and your information and just for you. I've really enjoyed this and am going to go think for a while or sit for a while. And I get the joy of editing this. So I'm looking really forward to to that process of of, of being in this again and with, with new ears. So say thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Yes. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. It's been a pleasure and very rewarding to hear all your perspectives on Rolf movement and movement in, in itself. So I look forward to hopefully meeting you in person someday. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with both of you. And I, I appreciate what you're doing with your podcasts. I appreciate the theme of your podcast, which is, is it into presence? Touching into presence. Touching into presence. I think that is a wonderful theme. So thank you. Thank you. Right. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye, Kevin. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Kevin at resourcesinmovement.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.